a seat, everybody. Good morning once again. Um, one of the things that um, we like to do is tell you a little bit about what's going on in uh, the city. And uh, some of you guys know that as a church, we are very connected with other churches in Arvada. And uh, for some people, that's weird. <laughs> uh, they think, wow, aren't you like trying to like compete against them? <laughs> no, um, not at all. Um, there's some great churches in this city with uh, different flavors and different personalities, but all trying to do the same thing and be the same thing. And, and so we've decided as a collection of churches, um, there are 60 churches praying for each other beginning tonight, today over the next few weeks. And so we've kind of split things up. And for us, we're in a group of a few churches that um, were involved, as I told you last week about Arvada High School, about uh, putting some fi fi finances towards uh, some of the under-resourced under, uh, families at Arvada High School. And so um, we are uh, part of this group of churches called City Unite, and we're, we're about two things. We're committed for pr to praying for each other, and we're committed to the city. We're committed to see what God is doing here in Arvada. And so today we want to pray for a church down the street, down near Old Town, called Mile High Vineyard. And as some of you guys know, this faith walking retreat we're a part of in a few weeks, we are actually combined with Mile High Vineyard Church. We're really good friends um, with many of their staff and, and their pastors. And, um, and we are just so thankful to be in uh, community with other churches like Mile High. Mile High is praying. They would like for us to pray uh, for them as a church. Their goal this year, they want to see, they're praying to see a hundred prodigals return, meaning a hundred people who have walked away from God uh, come back uh, and into relationship with God. And, and I just think that is just a great prayer, right? And, and so we want to pray alongside them and for them, as well as uh, pray uh, with all these other churches that are praying with them throughout Arvada today. So will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Mile High Vineyard, for Jay and Danielle Pathak, for just a great team of people down there. We, we are just so thankful for them and their care for us as a church and their belief in what you're doing here. But God, we just want to lift up Mile High Vineyard that you would... Um, through their efforts, through their praying, through their being available, that you would uh, return, that you would help uh, bring back uh, people who have walked away from the Lord, from you, um, into a community um, down at Mile High Vineyard that I know is loving and accepting and open and excited uh, to welcome them back. God, we're just praying for what you're doing in the city. Um, through Mile High Vineyard, through all these other churches who are united today. And God, we just ask that you would do wonderful things this year in 2017. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So this morning, as we take our offering, I also want you to know that um, we have a couple of neat things happening around here. Um, and, and one of those is we have some new sound equipment. So um, we're, we're, <laughs> there's a few of us really excited about that because it cuts down on a lot of uh, headaches around here. And so uh, your giving has just been really 
just we thank you for it to help us kind of move to the next level and the things that we can do. Um, and so as we take our offering this morning, we just want to thank you for that. Thank you for being faithful, sacrificial, um, and, and trust me when I say we, uh, we did our homework um, on the things that we purchased. And so, um, and thank you. So if you're new, you can let that go by. Uh, a couple other things I wanted to let you know is that um, our children's ministry here in a few, we- in a few weeks is going to be expanding. Um, we are going to be adding a room. We are growing in children's ministry, which is, um, you can't hear them now, but trust me, you will. Um, we want, we're creating a toddler room, a toddler-specific room now because of the age ranges of our kids. And so um, be thinking about if you would like to be involved in that. Um, we want to make that happen uh, by mid-March. And so if you're interested in toddlers, if you love those, that's a great age. This isn't an age where you have to do a big lesson or anything like that. It's just like have fun with some great toddlers. Um, and so we're creating the whole room. We're, we're, we're doing all the work. We would just love it if you would like to be a part of that like once a month. Let us know, okay? So we're in a series called Upside Down Kingdom. Um, we're in the Gospel of Matthew. If you have a Bible, grab it. If you are one of those tech people, uh, swipe it. Um, and we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4 this morning. And, and let me just begin by reading Matthew chapter 4, the first part of it. And, and I just want to give you a little um, taste of where we're going to be really the next two weeks. Uh, this is kind of a part one and a part two within the series. And um, this is a... Uh, This is an account that Matthew has written, and it's taking me forever to get to Matthew. Do you guys know where Matthew is, right? Okay, at least you guys, at least you guys know. Yeah. Uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse (laughs) 1. Finally there. Yeah, clap for that. Okay, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Here we go. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, which is, I think, one of the biggest understatements in Scripture, okay? Uh, The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell those stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And we're going to get back to that here in a second. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Then Jesus answered, It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All of this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended Now, this series we've begun is this belief that in Scripture, Jesus is announcing another kingdom. 
He's announcing another kingdom, and this kingdom is actually upside down to the kingdom we see in this world. It works differently. It, it, it happens differently. The good that Jesus wants to do in this world doesn't look like what this world looks like. And last week was Jesus' baptism, and we talked about the significance of Jesus stepping into the water and stepping into our mess, okay, as humanity, as human beings, as people lost. And then we see this, this piece of the wilderness theme coming up over and over again. And, and this, this passage I just read kind of raises a question. How do these writers know about this event? I mean, no one was there to witness it. Matthew wasn't there. Uh, the other gospel writers weren't there. I mean, how did they know about it? Well, I mean, it, it must have just been Jesus telling them. I mean, it must have been Jesus at some point throughout the journey with his disciples saying, I got I to gotta tell you something that happened. And this is what happened. And Luke's account is just a little different than Matthew's. He orders them a little differently. And, and, and Matthew and Luke probably have certain things they want to emphasize with their audiences. I mean, we talked last week how Matthew was writing to primarily Jewish people. And so there's certain things he's emphasizing here. But... But today, we're not going to go through those three different temptations. And you're probably like, well, I really want to know what those mean. Well, well, we might get to that. We might not. Today, I want to talk about two different words that you heard. Okay? And the first one is the word wilderness. Because I think if we don't understand what wilderness means, okay, a lot of us just think camping, you know, backpacking, things like that. But when it says, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, if you were a Jewish ear, if you had a Jewish understanding of, of what Jesus was saying, that word wilderness has so much meaning to it. It has so much power to it. It has so much richness to it because the wilderness is a pointer, okay, to, the, to a picture of something way bigger than just going out of the city, and being alone. It's something way bigger. The wilderness in scripture is both a place of paradox and a place of preparation. A place of paradox and a place of preparation. This, this message is now brought to you by the letter P, okay? Uh, a place of paradox, place of pe preparation. Can't even say it. I tried to do it again so I could say it right. Didn't work. Um, and so, so what I mean by paradox is that at, at, at one moment, uh, okay, the, the, the wilderness is a dangerous place. It is, it is a place where uh, there's difficulty and hardship and there's, there's wild animals and there's less food and there's just, there's just danger involved in it. And on the other side of it, there's actually a place of great safety and security and, and closeness of God. For instance, when you think about David... David is being pursued by Saul in the Old Testament, and he goes to the wilderness, and God hides David in the cleft of the rock, and he, and, he, and, he, and he keeps him safe, and yet at the same time, he's preparing him. See, a lot of times for us, when we think of um, our journey with God, what we do is we think, okay, uh, I'm in a place of safety and security, and, but I want God to use me. I want to know what God wants to do with me. And we think that there's this straight line from this to this, right? There's a straight line from, from kind of 
going to church and knowing who God is and, 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 and the safety of that and into what God wants you to do with your life, this purpose is. And usually it's not a straight line. Scripture shows us that usually people enter a time of the wilderness. It's a place of preparation. It's a place of, of, of you know, forging something in us. And so there's this motif all, all throughout Scripture of, of preparation for the wilderness. Elijah, David, Moses, John the Baptist. We just had this thing yes, last week about John the Baptist. He actually is in a priestly line. He actually could have some really cool temple duties and be really well-known and, and, and sought after because his parents were priests. And the word of God came to John the Baptist in the wilderness, okay? And remember, he was eating some really cool stuff and wearing some great clothes that everybody was just like, wow, this guy's impressive. Not so much. And then you have this theme of Israel being in the wilderness, right? In Deuteronomy chapter 8, Deuteronomy is actually Moses reminding the people of Israel who they are and why they are and who God is. Okay? And, in, and, and in chapter 8, verse 3, Moses says this. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna. And this is all in the wilderness, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. You just heard that. This is Jesus responding to one of the temptations of the devil. Now, this idea of the wilderness is so big in Jewish minds, okay? They understand this. This is part of the journey of the people of Israel, that God took them to the wilderness to humble them and to teach them. And at the same time, God provides for them and creates and prepares for them who they're going to be as they head into the land that God has promised. Now, it's not easy. It's not easy at all. The wilderness ends up being a place where lessons are learned. Where when we go through difficult things and we go through searching, we go through um, hardship, those are places where God forges in us who he wants us to be. And, and that's kind of what's going on here. In fact, there's this really nerdy correlation between the word in Hebrew for wilderness and the word in Hebrew for the word. Okay? And the word in Hebrew for wilderness is midbar, and the word for the word is dabar. And so for Hebrew people, there's this, when you hear those words, you actually hear there's almost a linguistic correlation between what, the, what God does to speak to us and what God does in the wilderness. Does that make sense? And so that was probably way nerdier than you wanted it. So when Moses says that God put you in the wilderness to teach you and to humble you, it turns out that there are lessons that we will only learn in the wilderness. There are things that you and I will only learn in the wilderness. That's why some teaching, some uh, prosperity gospel teaching just doesn't fly. It doesn't work. Not some, all of it doesn't work. It doesn't correlate with real scripture because what, what we're learning here is that they're only in the wilderness that you and I learn how to leave self-sufficiency behind. It's only in the wilderness, okay, 
that you and I actually can hear and learn to live by the word that comes from the mouth of God. And it's only in the wilderness that we learn to think that we're not entitled. And so when we hear the word wilderness, whenever you hear wilderness in scripture, understand that there's something bigger going on. And I'm not going to spend too much time on that. But this is the place where we learn that God carries us. This is the place where we learn that God is for us, that God is with us, and that God is ultimately God. And so we can understand that when Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness, there's something happening here. There's something big going on here that, that there's some amount of preparation that's being put into Jesus who is human, fully human, and yet God. And so that's the second word I want to talk about is in the same verse. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And so there's this, uh, this, this temptation that happens, this uh, temptation that happens from somebody else, from some other being, from somebody else, and that turns out to be the devil. Now, a lot of times we rush through that word, the devil. We rush through it. It's just, you just, what you do in church is you just, you know, you grow, you grow up going to church, you hear the stories, and, and you've got the devil and the tempter and Satan, and you've got these words that are, that are there. And I'm just going to be open and honest with this. This is it's a tough one for me. I mean, I hope it's I hope you maybe got your head around it and you've wrapped your head around it rationally. And um, I mean, here we are, post-enlightened, rationalistic, scientific people. What do we do with the devil? <laughs> what do we do with it? Is this some sort of mythology in scripture that we just go, nah, there's no devil. We know where thunder and lightning come from. It's not, you know what I mean? It's like, what do we do with this? And I'm just being honest, and if you think, well, gee, it sounds like our pastor doesn't believe in the devil. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, let's wrestle with this a bit. We need to wrestle with it. Because unless you understand the story in this way, unless you understand the story in this way, you won't understand what the mission of Jesus actually is. If you write off... Satan, the devil, whatever, how you want to call this evil force, this evil person, this evil figure, if you want to write it off, okay, you will completely miss the mission of Jesus in this world. For instance, just a, we're going to talk about this passage next week too, but Matthew, 4, chap, uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, it says, Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, as we're talking about, the healing and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Like, I love that. I love that about Jesus. He's healing sicknesses and diseases. I'm all on that. I mean, that would just, that, that would be amazing. Now, scientifically, can you prove it? I, we're not going to get into that. I'm just saying it would be, that would be really cool. News about him spread over all of Syria 
And people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee and Decapolis and Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now, now what I, I wanted to point out in that is that you've got he's healing diseases, he's healing sicknesses, you know, he's doing all this cool stuff. And then just thrown in is the demon-possessed. Okay? Now, you know, for you, you might be going, well, yeah, that sounds normal. But I think for some people, that's really hard to wrap their heads around. Like, is there really demonic forces? All those things. Now, let's go to chapter 8. When he arrived at the other side of the lake in the, regions, in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Like, there is something happening here that we don't tend to see every day. I mean, I'll just admit it. I I haven't seen this every day. I didn't see this last week. I didn't see this in October when it's, you know, Halloween, you know. I didn't see it then. I'm like, and so I'm not, I'm not trying to discount it. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. What I'm trying to tell you is that only people, it seems like in Scripture, only, the only people who knew who Jesus really are, are demons. Okay? And, and here's what I would tell you. That it sounds like at some of these places that the demons, the demon-possessed guys and, and ladies, that the demons actually know who Jesus is. They actually have a really good theology of who Jesus is. They actually name Jesus who he is before anybody else knows. So what I want to tell us is this. Good theology is really important, but if you don't trust it and live it, I mean, you're kind of in league with demons. And that's kind of a crazy thing to say. And so as I'm saying all this stuff, the demons and and all the stories, they all know who Jesus is. They all know. You don't have to, they, they know. Listen to this, Matthew chapter 10. It says, the student is not above the teacher. And this is uh, Jesus talking. Nor a servant above his master. It is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. Like Jesus is talking about this role. And then he says this. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household. So in, in Jesus' worldview, the devil has a kingdom has people working for him, has, has rule, uh, has a kingdom, has a rulership in this world. And so we read that uh, Satan is the adversary. We, we read that. We understand where that word comes from. In fact, the, words, the word ha-satan appears in scripture. It's the adversary. So Satan has a kingdom And Satan has spiritual forces working for him. And ultimately what we read is this world is under siege. This world is held hostage. And that there's groaning under the weight of that oppression, that rulership. 
And so Jesus goes on. He has an encounter. This is all out of the book of Matthew. So I'm, 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 this is Matthew talking and, and communicating. And, he, and, and there's this encounter that Jesus has with Pharisees down the line. And they've tried everything to trick him. They've tried all these things. Finally, they, they start to accuse him of being a demon himself. And this is where it gets really kind of funny. I mean, when you run out of answers, just, I guess, call somebody a demon, I guess. But there's this parable, um, and Jesus kind of knew the thoughts of the Pharisees. And we're going to read this. It says, Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined because they are accusing him. He has just cast out a demon. They're accusing him of being in league with the devil. And so he's like, why would I go against myself? Like, why would I be against myself? It's just like logical. Every kingdom divided against itself, he says, will be ruined. And every city or household divided against itself will, be, will not stand. He goes on to say, if Satan, the adversary, drives out Satan... He is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And he goes on. And if I drive out demons with by Beelzebub, my, by, by whom do your people drive them out? So then uh, they will be your judges. But if the spirit of God, if it is by the spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. What we're reading in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus being in the wilderness, being tempted by the adversary, is that Jesus ultimately prevails. That Jesus ultimately overcomes the things that you and I can't overcome on our own. And by being the stronger man... By being the stronger, he can actually bind up, okay? He can actually tie up the parable here, tie up the strong man, and then set everybody else free, right? So, so if someone's got someone held hostage, what Jesus is saying, I come in, I tie up that person, and let everybody else go. That's the analogy. That's the metaphor he's working with here. And so what Jesus is saying, you are seeing me do this. There are two kingdoms at work right now in this world. That's the, the, the God of this age, the prince of this world, and then my kingdom. And we're going to war. And all of Jesus' ministry is him going to war against this opposing force. And so if we don't understand that, if we don't believe that, if we really just come, whatever, we really don't understand Jesus. We really have... We're really missing his mission. And I know this stuff sounds really big and kind of weird and kind of horror movie-ish and whatever, but just follow me a little bit. I've just kind of given you a jet tour making one simple point. One point. The ministry of Jesus is impossible to understand unless you understand the spiritual pushback and warfare going on all around him that there's something he's set against. Otherwise, he's crazy. So it's that whole C.S. Lewis, Lord, liar, lunatic thing. Is Jesus Lord? And if he's not, then he's either crazy, okay, or he's a liar. And so what we have to grab onto is what's happening here. Because honestly, I'll just be honest. 
I, sometimes I hear some of these, I go, really? This stuff is tough. Now, I'll also be honest, I think some Christians, I think some Christians make way more out of spiritual warfare than I think that there is. I mean, you get a flat tire, it's not a demon. Um, you know, there could be that you did just get a virus. You know, it could be that, you know, and so I'm not trying to, but I think I'm talking to those of us maybe on the opposite extreme. That maybe we have a theology that says, yes, there is a devil and Satan, but it doesn't really make it into our reality. It doesn't even really make it into our, how we live our lives. And that's where I want to kind of lean today. And this is more for me than it is for you. So you get to just saddle up and listen to me talk to myself is what you get to do. Okay, because I want to talk to those of us that wrestle with the warfare bit, okay? And, um, and I'm just being honest. But in, 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 in John, three times John mentions the prince of this age, the archon of this age. He's referring to Satan. In Acts, we read that there's this releasing of people from out of under, okay, out from under the ruler of the kingdom of the air. In 2 Corinthians, we, we hear uh, Paul describe Satan as the god of this age, lowercase g. In 1 John, he writes, uh, John writes, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Opposing forces, Jesus is against it all throughout the New Testament, all throughout the Gospels. So it's impossible to really understand the work of Jesus without understanding this, that earth is a battleground and that this world is a place of warfare, really. And, and I admit it's easy to believe in God and it's easy to believe in potential, you know, the angel thing. And, and, and um, there was like a few years back where it was like everything was angels, you know, touched by an angel and, you know, all this stuff. <laughs> uh, and, 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 and I actually have, I find myself actually having an easier time believing in God because of the agents of evil at work in this world. And may I just get a little philosophical with you right now. When you talk about the problem of evil, when anybody ever has a question about if God real, I mean, how could God be real if evil exists? Well, the problem of evil exists not only for the Christian, the one who believes in God, but also for the one that doesn't. Because you still have to explain evil. Because if there is no evil, then how can you explain some of the things we see on the news? And wouldn't there have to be a correlating response to that evil? For instance, there's a book. Um, I was reminded of it this week. I was talking to Dan, and, and I was reminded of uh, Dostoevsky's book, The Brothers Karamazov. And if you haven't read The Brothers Karamazov, just get ready for like two years of your life, right? Okay, so uh, if you're a slow reader, um, or if you're a bathroom reader, let's just be honest. Some of you might just only read in the bathroom. So... Um, I'm going to pay for that one. Anyhow, so, so here's the thing. Brothers Karamazov, it's about three brothers. Uh, and I just about did uh, a Beastie Boys song right then. Um, but it was three brothers you know so well. I'm sorry. Um, and so Ivan, 
Ivan uh, and, and uh, uh, Aloysia. It's hard to pronounce like how he does it. Aloysia. Aloysia is the youngest, and he's the God-loving, fearing brother, right? Usually the youngest are. Let's just be honest. The youngest brothers are the more caring ones and the ones that have more faith. But at least that's my experience. Anyhow, so, so and he's the youngest brother and his oldest brother who he loves. He cares for him. Ivan is just kind of a wreck. His life's kind of a wreck. And they meet to talk about God. And it, the, the chapter is called the Grand Inquisitor. And people have studied this part, portion of literature on its own, let alone not even reading the old book. So you're welcome to just read the Grand Inquisitor. But it's Ivan's questioning of Aloysia and his belief in God and why he believes in God and how he can believe in a God who lets children be abused and lets children get eaten by dogs and, and things like that. And, and it, this is Russia. This is harsh world. Um, and so there's this conversation that, that Ivan has with him. He says that I can't, I can't accept, he says, and in quotes, I can't accept this fabric of society, this fabric of human destiny, I cannot accept. And so he basically says, if, if God were here, if Jesus were here face to face, I would say, you can have your ticket back. You can have that back. I don't want to be a part of this. And so when I think about that and I think about the problem of evil and I understand, I understand Ivan's, uh, Ivan's uh, argument, I get it. Why would, how could this be allowed to happen? I mean, if God is all powerful and we're not going to get into the philosophy of all this, but, but what Jesus is saying is there are two powers at work and one of them won't be work forever. One will overcome the other. And we see in the temptation of Jesus the beginning of that. We see in the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, in this place of paradox and preparation, the beginning of that. We know from Scripture that there are spiritual agents that can wreak havoc on this earth. And so when we ask, why do bad things happen? We can say, yes, we as human beings screwed up. Yes, there is a, there's a... A point in my life that I have to look inward and all of that. But we also need to understand that there are intelligent beings created by God that fell away from God that are at work in a very sinister way. They are not God's equal. They are God's opposites. And so if you can talk about this as a theology, but what about reality? Can we just talk about reality a little bit? Because we could say that God and, and creation, we understand particles and motion and chemistry and physics, and, and we understand all that stuff, but spiritual beings are hard. You and I live in a cosmic war, Scripture tells us. And the end is assured, okay? The end will, I mean, it is, it is you know, hoped for and believed and sure, but the war is still waging. So one of the reasons I think... And that I have a, you know, a hard time or a trouble sometimes believing um, is that it's sometimes I don't think it can affect me. And that's not true. See, all of the warnings about the adversary in Scripture are to Christians. They're all to believers, followers. 
all of the to believers. Another reason, I mean, you, you've, you've heard these, like uh, Paul says uh, that, that, that the devil's like a prowling lion, just walking around, waiting. We talk about this idea of giving the devil a foothold. That actually, that word means giving the devil a place to stay, a room to live in your home, in your life, in your heart. That there are things that in our lives that if, if we don't understand we're in a war, things are going to feel differently. Another reason why we don't believe it is sometimes we don't understand the nature and the authority that we have in Jesus. We don't understand that because of these temptations, because of this is one instance, but because of his overcoming, okay, of the adversary, we actually get baptized with Christ. We actually have this power too. We have this authority too. We have this way through as well. It goes kind of like this. I was talking to, um, we had family over last night, Sydney's birthday. We were hanging out. We we're talking at the table. Um, and my dad uh, fought in Vietnam. He's here in the room. And we were telling some stories. Well, we. It's like I was telling my Nam stories. But um, he was telling some stories. And, and, and I asked him, I said, were you ever surprised if people were shooting at you? No. I mean, when you're in a war, it doesn't surprise you that there's gunfire. In fact, he told the story that, that he knew when the attack was coming because he could smell marijuana coming from the other side. And they were preparing themselves for an attack. And so you weren't surprised in a battle, in a war, when someone shot at you. And I got to thinking about that a little bit. And when we tell people that Jesus is the answer to every problem, but don't tell them that following Jesus means you're taking steps towards God that are going to be very difficult. We're, we're, we're being disingenuous. I mean, following Jesus, we say this all the time, following Jesus leads to mission. There is an opposing mission. There just is. Jesus confronted it. If you haven't uh, followed Jesus enough to confront it, you will. J.R.R. Tolkien, for those nerds in the room, listen, in The Hobbit, those um, literature nerds, it's not the same as nerds, but uh, The Hobbit, he says this, I, it will not do to leave the live dragon out of your calculations if you live near him. And it won't do that for us either. It will not do for us to, we, we need to consider the live dragon into our calculations. See, the story you think you're living will cause you to live it in certain ways, okay? So, it kind of goes like this. If you think your life is a movie genre, like a romance novel, um, you're going to live your life 
in, in kind of that way. You're going to be looking for romance. You're going to be looking for satisfaction in relationships. If, if, you, if you live your life as like a, like a brave heart kind of flick where you've got to overcome stuff in your life, whether they're your past or, you know, relationships or whatever, you're trying to overcome everything. If you, maybe it's a drama, you know, whatever. But, if, but I was thinking about the movie Saving Private Ryan when I was thinking about this, um, what my dad said yesterday. Those guys storming the beach in Normandy, they weren't shocked they were getting shot at. They prepared for it. They had, if you, if you read uh, D-Day history and the preparations that went in for that and, and just where the tides would be with all the obstacles on the beach and all the things, that, they knew they were going to get shot at. They knew what places they had to take out. See, war is the backdrop for all of this. And I know the war image is not pretty. Paul uses it all the time even though he was a pacifist. But we understand conflict and battle. Part of the battle is knowing that you're in one. That's what I want to just communicate a little bit today. I know this sounds heavy and big, and I wish it wasn't this way, but it is this way. You're in a battle, and part of you understanding that is to live a little differently. I mean, we, because we're followers of Jesus, and he's tying up the strong, strong man and setting people free, we actually get to be a part of that. We get to plunder the other side. That's part of our job. We're going to talk about that a little bit more next week. But for instance, and I think we have this on the screen. Do you have the war ration card? I was thinking about this the other day. And I found a war ration book from World War II. And, and a lot of us weren't around to know what these were, but basically during World War II, there was limited resources for the country. And so we were trying to fight this two-front war in the world that obviously um, was a big deal. And, um, and so as a nation, there was certain things that you were rationed, sugar, different things um, that you couldn't use or you couldn't use much of. And part of the war rationing effort was to keep resources alive for everybody. And so people weren't hoarding and people weren't stockpiling, raising the prices. And part of this was a price shield, and I won't get into the economics, but listen to this is what's on the back of this card. Listen to this. It says, rationing is a vital part of our country's war effort. Any attempt to violate the rules is an effort to deny someone his share and will create hardship and help the enemy. Okay? And so if, if you, you grandparents remember this stuff and you would use what you had, okay, and you got what you got, and you made it work. And you did it. It was a collective national togetherness on the war effort. Um, and, and your job as a citizen was to go without, to keep uh, from using certain things and to go without and in order to see yourself uh, as a part of the war effort, even if you weren't fighting. There was a collective togetherness on it. You knew you were at war, and if you didn't need it, you didn't buy it. Now, I want to contrast that with a credit card. <laughs> a little different, right? A credit card's about me. There's no togetherness here with this, right? If I want it, I go buy it, pay for it later, maybe way later, right? Depending on how you use your credit cards. But if I want something, I go buy it. 
I'm not thinking about anybody else. I'm not thinking about what this means to you and what this means to others. I'm not thinking about anything else. I'm just thinking about me. There's no greater good in it at all. And I want to suggest that figuring the dragon into your calculations in your life actually means that everything you have has a bigger purpose. Everything that you are has a bigger purpose, that you're a part of something not just consuming, not just materialism, not just convenience, that Jesus followers that know they're in a battle, okay, uh, and there's, there's Jesus followers that know they're in a battle, there's Jesus followers that don't. And I think a lot of times we, we really don't understand why this matters. Here's why this matters. Because if there are two kingdoms and we're in a battle with the other one, it matters because there are more slaves today in this world than ever in the history of the planet. That should matter. Like that really should matter. If we feel like the slavery issue is an opposing kingdom win, then we need to do something about it, right? It matters when human trafficking is literally at our doorstep in Arvada. It matters. It matters about racism. It matters about prejudice. It matters about all these things that are happening in this world that we see on the news, that we experience in real life, and yet we, we're not really, at, we don't really think we're at war. Now, here's what the world thinks we're at war with. <laughs> I mean, if you were to ask someone on the street, hey, so, so you're a, yeah, I'm a Christian, what do you think I'm against? <laughs> Good luck with that one, right? What do you think I'm against? What do you think I'm at war with? You're going to get some different answers. So what does it look like? I mean, okay, so if this is true, okay, so let me just back this up. If this is true, if there's two kingdoms, like Jesus is saying, and, and he's at war with it, if there's two kingdoms, then what does this demand from us? I think it demands something more rigorous from us than we've really given. Because if you and I exist to share in the plundering of the other kingdom, okay, then, then we need to be, I guess, more intentional. Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to wrap up with this. Ephesians chapter 6, this is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. He says this near the end of his letter. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God. Some of you have heard this before, so that you can make your stand against the devil's schemes. And this is where I think it's really interesting. A lot of times we, you know, we'll be in like children's group, you know, ministry, and they'll, they'll make a shield and a sword and we, and you know, whatever. And, and let me just tell you who he's writing to. He's writing to a group of people, not to individuals. Okay? There is something about the togetherness of this fight we're in that. Uh, you need to understand has to do with you being a part of it, you being a part of the group. 
He's not saying, hey, individuals, go put on. No individual can put on the full armor of God. It's not like the issue here. He's just saying as a group, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. But that's the, that's the easier struggle, isn't it? Like to actually battle certain people and certain uh, political figures or whatever it is. We want to battle flesh and blood. We want to battle a group of people who disagree with us or or we think shouldn't do what they're doing. Paul says that's not the battle. He says the battle is against the rulers and against the authorities and the powers of this dark world, this other kingdom, right? Therefore, put on the full armor of God, he says, as a group, so that one day... When the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. He wrote this to a church. Now, here's the thing. We have a big old bag of weapons that we use, that scripture says that we use to fight the other side. Not people, but we fight the other side. Here's how, you know what those, those weapons are? Foot washing, service, sacrifice, generosity, like unmitigated generosity. Like the kind of generosity that says, yeah, you should still pay me back. Not that one. Not that kind of generosity. The kind of generosity that says, have it. The kind of kindness that that puts you in the rear. The kind of reconciliation that hurts. Even if you don't think you've done anything wrong. Even if you don't think you've done anything wrong personally, but you may be a part of a group of people that kind of has. We, these are the kind of weapons that we use, okay? Not Twitter. Not slander. Not writing people off because it's who we follow. See, Jesus is nailed to a cross down the road in the story, and he's forgiving the people who are doing it to him. Like actually crucifying him and standing in front of him and fighting over his clothes and mocking him, he's forgiving them. That's kingdom warfare. That's what we sign up for, men and women. (laughs) That's part of this. They overcome, it says in Revelation, they overcame the dragon by the word of their testimony in the name of Jesus. So, two things in response to this as we quickly wrap up. Got the worship guys in the back going, dude, really? You keep talking. First is, as a church, as a community, I will admit, and I take the lead on this one, that as a community, we haven't fought well together in prayer. That as the demands of starting a church and the things that you need and all this stuff to do, sometimes prayer gets pushed to the sidelines. And I take responsibility for that. 
Next week, we want to begin to pray intentionally together as a church. You're like, Ryan, what about this week? Well, what I'm telling you is, I mean, we're going to do it next week. Um, no, <laughs> what I'm telling you is, is that we're going to get intentional before the service. And if you would like to come before the service to pray, we would love for you to come. And we're going to pray big picture stuff, mission, vision, who God is, um, that kind of thing. And we're going to gather here um, either it's probably going to be in the room across the hall at 8.45 in the morning. But that's so early, I know. But we would love to invite you into that with us. But the second response I have is I'm going to invite Dan's fork up. And Dan's put together something that might be helpful for you over the next couple of weeks when it comes to your own life, okay, and some of the temptations that you have struggled with and, and whether we feed one kingdom or the other. Okay, so I'm going to turn.